Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we are very late with this episode. Well, I blame the blizzard. You know, we live in Maine, so we're used to it. But the biggest issue is I'm more blame Spectrum, my internet provider. So the blizzard was on Saturday. Sunday was a beautiful sunny day, but my internet was inexplicably off literally all day. Like I think for 15 or more hours, it just never came on. And the thing is, I live across from, it's not a pump house, but I was thinking a little cinder block building and I could see their trucks out there with the lights flashing literally all day. Well, they were trying that. I guess they were. And it finally came on at 930 at night. But the problem is not only is it hard to do research and write my script, but then I have like, you know, I'm freelance stuff. I have it's all internet based. So yeah. if I can't do my jobs, everything gets behind. So that's part of the problem. Okay. Um, but it's all solved now. Also, this ended up being a much more complicated story than I thought. They always do. Because this one's going to be two parts, which mm. is always. But first, I have an update. Okay. Maura Murray. They found her. She's all right. She was up in Canada yeah. for the weather. Um. <laughs> So my friend Carol Robideau has a news site, Manchester Inc. Link in Manchester, New Hampshire. She got laid off from the union leader in Manchester, and she started her own digital news site that's doing very well, and she was named New Hampshire Journalist of the Year for 2021. But I'm doing a little freelancing for her, and there was some Mora news. Um, So I wrote a story, and I'm actually, it's not a long story. I'm going to read it because I didn't have really time to write an update. And also I want to say I scooped it because everybody all they did was cut and paste some information that wasn't even complete information and me being the journalist i am got all the information we never cut and paste that's right story okay it was at the request of the new hampshire office of attorney general that maura murray a university of massachusetts student who's been missing since 2004 was added to the fbi vicap registry last week The FBI violent criminal apprehension profile's purpose is to share information with law enforcement across the country to track and apprehend, quote, violent serial offenders, unquote, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. Local law enforcement can request that missing people, among other potential victims, be added to the database. VICAP is simply another investigative avenue being used in the case. New Hampshire Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Streltson told Manchester Inkling, in other words, me, because I'm apparently the only quote-unquote journalist in New England who actually contacted his office to ask, did you guys ask for this? Quote, like all investigative avenues, the hope is that it may lead to useful information in the case, Streltson said. Murray's family was notified by a victim witness advocate of the AG's office last week, Streltson said. Murray disappeared after crashing her car on Route 112 in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, February 9, 2004. Extensive investigation by local and state law enforcement in the years since have turned up scant information about what may have happened to her. Julie Murray, who publicly represents the family, said in television interviews last week that when she was notified about the VICAP alert, she wasn't told why the alert was issued now, nearly 18 years after her sister disappeared. Quote, I hope it's because there's new information, she said in a News Nation interview, but I think it's because law enforcement has exhausted all their sources that they have available, and this is a very powerful database they can use to track and correlate information. 
unquote. The purpose of ICAP is to largely help find people who may be victims of a crime, as well as find patterns that will lead to nailing down serial criminals. The U.S. Department of Justice website explains that the crime analysts, specially trained to study the database with the goal of identifying serial offenders, have developed timelines on potential highway serial killer suspects. Law enforcement agencies nationwide have been asked to forward information about cases meeting highway serial killing criteria, including kidnapped or missing persons whose last known location was along a highway. ICAP was created in 2009 as part of the FBI's Highway Serial Killer initiative. By 2019, the FBI had included more than 750 victims in its database and identified more than 450 possible predators. Uh. Strelson's office has been investigating Murray's disappearance since shortly after it happened. We don't know if Mora is a victim, but the state is treating it as a potential homicide, he told Nancy West of the New Hampshire Union leader in 2007. It may be a missing persons case, but it's being handled as a criminal investigation, unquote. The FBI was briefly involved in the investigation shortly after Murray disappeared, interviewing people in Massachusetts who knew her. Her disappearance is officially labeled as, quote, suspicious, and was added to the state's cold case investigation unit in 2009. Murray, 21, disappeared just after 7.30 p.m. February 9, 2004, on Route 112 in Haverhill. She'd driven her car into a snowbank after a sharp right turn after the intersection with Old Peters Road, on the two-lane that's also Old Amanusik Road in North Haverhill. In the 20 minutes between when she declined help from someone driving by and when a Grafton County Sheriff's Department deputy arrived, she was gone, taking her backpack and leaving her locked car, damaged from the crash. Her disappearance caught the imagination of the internet, and over the years, theories among bloggers and amateur web sleuths have ranged widely and wildly, fueled by the uh. fact that she hadn't confided in anyone when she left her dorm at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Before Murray left Amherst that afternoon, she called vacation accommodations in Vermont, as well as saw information on a condominium rental in Bartlett, New Hampshire, an area she spent a lot of time with her family. She didn't make any reservations over the phone, though. Her father, Fred Murray, told WMUR-TV in 2014 that he was sure his daughter, a Massachusetts native, was on her way to Bartlett, which would have involved taking Route 112. Quote, she knows it like her backyard, he said. We were in New Hampshire so much, at least four times a year, she was up there every year of her life, unquote. Julie Murray reiterated in TV interviews last week that her family believes Mora was looking for a break to get away briefly from her stressful life as a nursing student, possibly in Bartlett. She brought textbooks and schoolwork with her on the trip. The family over the years has rejected the theory that Mora died by suicide, and law enforcement has said that if that had happened, her body likely would have been found. After extensive searches of the woods near where Murray left her car turned up no clues, the most logical theory is that she was picked up by a predator, either a local person or someone driving through. The last time the New Hampshire Attorney General's office reported a potential development in the case was in April 2019 when a house near where Murray was last seen was searched. Nothing was turned up in the search. The case also made news in September when human bone fragments were found on Loon Mountain, about 20 miles east on Route 112. Those fragments turned out not to be Murray's and are likely more than a century old. The spot where Murray crashed has become a nuisance site, and the owners of the property in the past couple of years removed the grove of trees lining the road where people frequently tie blue ribbons to mark the crash site. After the trees were removed, a group 
petition to get a historical marker placed at the site, but the petition was denied last March by the New Hampshire State Department of Transportation. And this story appeared January 24th. So when I say last week, it was the week before that. And I will say too, that Julie Murray, mm -hmm. Maura's sister, contacted Carol Robodeau, the editor of Manchester Inc. Link, and thanked her for our story. Uh -huh. Not to blow my own horn, but when I bitch about journalism, it was so fucking easy to do. It was just fucking easy to find that information because the FBI didn't even release a news release. So Julie Murray like tweeted about the VICAP. And so people found the VICAP, which is basically just a missing persons poster of Maura Murray. And then people wrote, just repeated the information without finding out what it was or what its significant was or anything else. I'm not saying, oh, I'm this great journalist, because what I did, any like- Even though you are. I am. But what I did, any fucking cub reporter could do, mm -hmm. and any editor should have said, what is this fucking VICAP? Get more information. But all people do is just cut and paste the same fucking shit. I know. I know. And speaking of which, should we just get right into my story? I guess so. Um, I feel on. like I probably should have some kind of Well, update, you can, but... there's always another episode. First of all- Today is the rare, as I said, part one of an episode. I thought this would be relatively short when I first started looking into it, but little did I know how much there was to it. So our next episode will be part two. Much of my information for this came from newspaper archives on newspapers.com. In particular, the Vermont newspapers, Rutland Daily Herald, uh, most of the stories reported by Diane Derby and the Burlington Free Press. Most of the stories reported by Michael Donahue. I also use information from the Boston Globe, both from newspapers.com and currently. I've also used information for the awesome 2008 book, Erased, Missing Women, Murdered Wives by Marilee Strong. Most of that will be in part two. While she does not discuss this case in particular, her reporting and research gives a context that, sadly, 14 years after the book was published, people still don't seem to understand. And if anyone out there thinks Scott Peterson is innocent, if there are still people who are under that delusion, pick up a copy of this book and hopefully it'll change your mind. It was published in 2008, but I'm sure you can find one. I did. Her book, like she frames it with Scott Peterson, but it basically, but it also looks into the phenomena of men who kill their wives, ex-wives, girlfriends, or ex-girlfriends, not in quote unquote the heat of passion, uh -huh. but a planned killing. And she calls them eraser killers because they're basically trying to erase the woman from their lives. And we'll talk more um, next episode about it in, in a little more detail because people do not get it constantly. Well, also it's the men that aren't already, they're not. Abusers. Right. Well, that's one of the yeah. many things yeah. that we'll talk about, which people don't get. People. Yes, yeah. it does flummox people. And the constant, like, little baby birds asking the police for motive. What's the motive? What's the motive? But let's get started, and we'll talk about this, and then we'll get into that next time more. On January 12th of this year, Gregory Fitzgerald, who'd been serving life without parole for the May 1993 first-degree murder of his wife, Amy, struck a deal with Vermont officials to get the sentence reduced to 35 years. That means with good behavior, Fitzgerald may be released sometime this year. Many of the articles about this in the past few weeks refer to Fitzgerald as having a double life, 
when he murdered his wife, Amy, in Shelburne, Vermont, uh-huh. on May 8th, 1993. That's a phrase I'm having increasing intolerance for. People don't live a double life. They live one life. And if people in their life don't know about huge aspects of it, all that means is the person with the quote unquote double life is duplicitous and controlling. Double life makes it sound almost like this kind of cutesy thing. And it's Mm. one life lived in a bad way. And there's no better way to look at this than to look at the murder of Amy Fitzgerald, her extraordinary life and the pathetic and duplicitous life of the man she loved and who claimed to love her, but then killed her. I've heard somewhere that every criminal makes an average of 30 mistakes, Hmm. even ones who think they're smart. In fact, thinking you're smart enough to get away with murder, not that people don't sometimes get away with it, is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. Gregory Fitzgerald made some classics. Amy Fitzgerald was born in 1963, the only daughter and one of three children of Sam and Ellen Zeltzerman. Sam was a well-known criminal defense attorney in the Boston area, and the family lived in Newton, one of the wealthiest towns in Massachusetts. Amy graduated from Newton North High School in 1980 and briefly attended the School of Pharmacy at Northeastern University in Boston, then transferred to the University of South Florida in Tampa, where she graduated in 1985 with degrees in zoology and medical technology. She joined the U.S. Navy in May 1985, serving until December 31, 1986. Then, the day after she mustered out of the Navy, she enlisted in the U.S. Army. She was chief of immunochemistry at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, before she deployed to the Persian Gulf, where she served a six-month tour of duty during the Persian Gulf War and was awarded two Army Commendation Medals, two Army Achievement Medals, and one medal from a meritorious service. Her job there was to set up medical assistance during the Persian Gulf War in 1991, including setting up a hospital in complete darkness. Her laboratory was the focal point of the frontline blood supply during the ground offensive of the war, the Army said. By the time she was back in the state, she was a captain. Almost exactly a year before her death to the day, she was awarded the General Douglas MacArthur Leadership Award in a ceremony at the Pentagon. Her nomination for the award said that Amy was, quote, the consummate Army Medical Department professional, gifted with leadership traits that motivated and challenged unit personnel to excel in a combat environment, unquote. By then, she was back from the war and attending the officer advance course at the Army Medical Department School at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. She was in Vermont in 1983 because the Army gave her two years leave so she could enroll in a two-year medical technology master's degree program at the University of Vermont, which is in Burlington. She was a tremendous leader at the school, said Renee LaChapelle, director of the program. Besides her studies, she helped teach at the university's undergraduate program. Amy moved to Vermont, where she rented a condo in Shelburne, seven miles south of Burlington, in the summer of 1992. And Burlington is Vermont's biggest city. Her classes began in September of 1992. Amy had married Greg Fitzpatrick in 1987 when she was 24 and he was 30, though they'd been together since she was 19. It's not clear all these years later exactly what Greg was doing while Amy was going to war, (laughs) earning medals, expanding her knowledge and growing and excelling in the complicated and challenging field she'd chosen. Her brother later said that Greg never really worked full time at all while he was married to Amy. By May 19, which is a, definitely an eraser killer red flag. And also, like, how do these losers get these nice 
well, accomplished we'll, women. We will talk about that later. By May 1993, while Amy was pursuing her studies in Vermont, a place she also planned to settle down after she got out of the military, Greg was finishing up a master's in American history at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Or so everyone thought. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of those. I know <laughs> the, the, the number of these guys who lied about going to college, you know, it's like they put more effort into making, uh, creating this false life than if they t- would just go to college, you know. Amy was due to fly to Texas on May 16th, 1993 for Greg's graduation. She'd already sent him $3,000 as a graduation present. Uh. Then the two planned to drive back to Vermont where Greg would join her as she finished her program. But that never happened. On Friday, May 7th, Amy hung out with some friends at a graduate student end of the year function. Finals were going to begin Monday. Early reports said her friends last saw her at 9 p.m., but that doesn't jibe with later stuff, so it was probably a couple of hours earlier. No reporters seemed to have talked to anyone who saw her at the party, and the 9 p.m. apparently came from a police report. And as I found over a long career in journalism, as well as doing this, police reports often simply get things wrong. My guess is it's something like the party broke up around 9, and everyone was like, you know, when the cops asked, do you remember when Amy left? No, I don't really remember, but we were all pretty much gone by 9, so, you know, let's just say 9 kind of thing. At 8.45 a.m. Saturday, May 8th, an employee of Sam's Unfinished Furniture on North Winooski Avenue in Burlington's Old North End called police to complain about a maroon Plymouth Vista parked in front of the store. Police determined it was parked legally and didn't pursue it even though the door was unlocked and there was a wallet on the seat. On Monday, May 10th, Amy didn't show up for her final exams, something that her fellow students and instructors considered very odd. She'd already missed some appointments over the weekend, including one with her little sister from the Big Brother Little Sisters program, which was supposed to take place on Saturday. Hmm. When she didn't show up for exams again Tuesday, several friends called police. Meanwhile, Robert Willard, an employee at Sam's Unfinished Furniture, called the police again Tuesday morning to tell them that the Plymouth Vista was still parked there, still unlocked, and still with a wallet on the front seat. Amy's condo was in a cluster of six on Bay Road in Shelburne, about seven miles south of Burlington. The condo complex was about 100 yards from busy, or relatively busy for Vermont, U.S. Route 7, which is a two-lane country road that runs from the Connecticut coast north through western Massachusetts and the entire length of Vermont to the border with Canada. Amy's condo was also near Shelburne Bay on Lake Champlain. Her ground floor unit was around the back, surrounded by trees. A neighbor let Burlington Police Detective Steve Bork into Amy's condominium around 2 p.m. on Tuesday, May 11th. Later, they realized that the door to the patio had been left open, newspapers reported. It's not clear by left open, if they mean actually open or just unlocked. And then even later, police said a lock was broken. Uh So who knows? Work found Amy's badly beaten body in the bathtub. It was obvious that she was dead. Police said right off that they were considering a homicide, but all else they would say at first was that she'd been physically assaulted. Police wouldn't tell the press whether it was a random attack or if they knew who did it. They wouldn't say specifically how she died or what weapon was used. It's too early to make that judgment right now, Major Nick Ruggiero of the Vermont State Police said at a news conference. He said releasing autopsy results and other details would jeopardize the investigation. 
At the point we feel it is time to enlighten you, we will, he told reporters. I know that reminds me of New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick, who is always (laughs) so disdainful of reporters and treats them like idiots. He would say the, the same type of thing. And that's one of the reasons I dislike him so much. In the case of Ruggiero, his attitude toward the press would come back bite him. Ruggiero did say that there was no strong evidence of a struggle, which he meant overturned chairs and the like. He said they were still trying to figure out how the intruder got in. To which Maureen says again, am I the only person in America who, when I'm at home and not in bed, doesn't lock my door always? But aside from that... I know I don't always lock mine. Oh, it's like on these shows and everything, you're always saying, well, there is no sign of forced entry. And it's like, does everyone lock their doors? But aside from that, the fact that they were trying to figure that out and much later that there was a broken lock is something that I think is significant, but I'd be getting too far ahead to talk about it now, but just keep that and just put a pin in that, as they say. Ruggiero also said that just because her body was found in the bathtub doesn't mean that she was killed in the condo. Lauren Bowerman, the chief deputy state's attorney for Chittenden County, said Amy's schedule between school and her army duties was a busy one. And it's one reason why people may not have realized she wasn't around for a few days. Diane Derby of the Rutland Herald reported on Thursday, May 13th, that detectives were scouring the area around the condo on Wednesday morning, and there were 18 investigators on the case. Ruggiero, the state police major, and apparently the cop in charge of the investigation, or at least the one in charge of talking to the press, said on Wednesday, the day after Amy's body was found, that there were no strong suspects, but also said neighbors had provided police with information. We have certain people we're looking at closely. As far as if I would define them as suspects as of today, that's too early, he said. Uh He said they were checking on leads related to people who were in the Bay Road area at the time Amy was thought to have been killed. By then, they'd figured out the car in the old north end of Burlington was Amy's, and it was impounded. Ruggiero wouldn't speculate on how Amy's car ended up in Burlington's Old North End and said that speculating it was stolen would be speculation. (laughs) Looking up the store on Google Maps, it's now Sam's Wood Furniture. It probably doesn't surprise you, as it did not surprise me, that the store's lot is bordered by Route 7, the same road that eight miles to the south is 100 yards from Amy's condo. Also, no one came out and said what the significance of the area the car was found in was, at least not in the press. But Vermont was then and is still now one of the whitest states in the U.S. And the Old North End was then and is still now, quote unquote, ethnically diverse, which in northern New England is usually code for low income and scary to white middle class people. In 1993, it was where the majority of the state's black residents lived. Not that that means anything, except for the biggest thing to keep in mind, the 1980s and 90s were the height of the, if you're white and commit a crime, blame it on a black guy era. Because who's going to question it? This was just a few years after Charles Stewart did just that in Boston. Yeah. After he killed his wife, Carol, though he didn't get away with it, a case I'm sure that Greg Fitzgerald was very familiar with. And frankly, leaving the car unlocked with a wallet in clear view is a way to have some poor sucker steal the wallet, steal the car, Mm -hmm. and suddenly become a murder suspect. But I'm glad no one in Burlington's Old North End fell for it. That should tell you something. Police by then were also soliciting the public's help. They were particularly interested to know if anyone saw Amy's car being parked where it was, and a tip box with a police phone number ran in the paper. 
Burlington Police Chief James Warden said, we're asking anyone if they saw the car to call. We're really interested in the activities early Saturday morning. He said that police had received scores of calls. Those are AP's words. I'm not sure if he really used the word scores. After running a photo of Amy. But he repeated Vermont State Police Major Nick Ruggiero's comments of the day before that there were no strong suspects. Warden said, just as Ruggiero had, that many details were being withheld to aid the investigation. He did say, though, that Amy fought off her attacker. He points out that she was trained in self-defense, quote, and she was in great physical shape. There's no doubt about that, unquote. Hmm. A reporter said that the previous day, Ruggiero had said there were no signs of a struggle. So wasn't that a contradiction? Warden said there was not a lot of damage in the apartment, but there were signs of a struggle. No doubt about that. So I think that Ruggiero meant there were no signs to the apartment of a struggle. Interestingly, though in 1993, some jurisdictions were using DNA testing at crime scenes, there's no mention of it in any story regarding this case. The police don't bring it up. No reporter ever brings it up, even to ask or to speculate, which tells me it wasn't even a glimmer in Vermont's eye at the time. This case may have been easier if it had been, since Amy did fight back. Warden, the chief, said the more he learned about Amy, the more he realized the extent of the tragedy. Quote, most of her activities were involved with goodwill and helping people, he said. He also said that Amy's husband, Greg, was expected to be in Vermont the next day, Friday, arriving with Amy's family from Massachusetts. Greg, indeed, had rolled into Newton, Massachusetts, late the night of Thursday, May 13th, two days after he'd heard about Amy's death. Despite the fact he frequently flew, he drove from San Antonio to Newton. Now, it's come to my attention from watching the YouTube series Lost in the Pond by Britt Lawrence Brown, who now lives in America, that people in the UK don't understand the distances in the US. Since we have so many UK listeners, thanks guys. Here's some perspective. San Antonio to Boston is 2,032 miles if you take the most direct route which driving without stopping would take more than 30 hours. That Thursday night in Newton, Boston Globe reporter Judith Gaines talked to Greg and the Zeltzermans at Amy's parents' house. Greg looked at a photograph of Amy sitting in the Iraqi desert next to two purple flowers and told Gaines that the flowers were small little symbols of life. Quote, she found those wherever she went, unquote. He said the last time he saw Amy had been about a month before. We took a disadvantaged little 11-year-old girl out to play softball, he said. And we can presume that's little sister from the Big Brother Sisters program, I think. Amy's brother, David Zeltzerman, was also there, referring to another photo, one of Amy in an army medical tent blowing bubbles. David said, she was a special person. I guess people say that all the time when they lose someone they love, but she really was very special. She was very outgoing, always volunteering, always trying to help other people out. And I want to say, too, that while I was researching this, I realized it it was kind of startling that I know David Selserman, although only as an acquaintance. I was in an author event in Newton, Mass., where there were a whole bunch of authors. It was part of a two-day whirlwind author tour of Massachusetts for my third book (laughs) in December 2018, And after the event, a mutual friend 
of mine and David Seltzerman's, Dale Phillips, who you know, Becky. I know Dale. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He got us to go out for beer and pizza at some pub, and the three of us sat there, and David Zeltzerman was quite entertaining. He has a great story about film option for one of his books and the ordeal that was and stuff, but I'd totally forgotten about that until I saw her maiden name, and then all of a sudden I had this flash, and I realized that that was the same guy. Needless to say, he didn't mention his sister's murder, and I can imagine it's still a very painful tragedy in his family. Anyway, Boston Globe reporter Judith Gaines also talked to Marie Christensen for that story. Marie lives in San Antonio and had served with Amy in Iraq, sharing a tent with her. She was always full of energy and life, Marie said. Once, when they were tired of being cooped up in the tent, they decided to go find the highest land in the area that they could. All they could find was a sand dune, but Amy went up on top of it and planted an American flag. It wasn't all fun and games in Iraq, though, Christensen said, quote, Amy would go up and down this road we called Suicide Road, getting lab supplies so the troops would have blood as we moved forward. Amy's father, Sam Zeltzerman, told Gaines that night, I still can't get the reality of what happened. It's a dream, an ugly, terrible dream. Uh. And just not for nothing, compare his anguish and David's anguish and what they say to Craig's kind of flat and non-emotional stories. The next day, Friday of the week Amy was found dead, the Burlington police filmed a Crime Stoppers alert at Sam's Unfinished Furniture. Police had impounded the car Tuesday, as I said, but on Friday brought it back to film the alert. In the video, which is described in a Burlington Free Press story by Mike Donahue, Vermont State Police Major Nick Ruggiero stands next to the car outside the furniture store and says, we need to talk to someone who saw this car parked here. Hmm. And I assume he means who saw this car parked like being parked. Being parked, yeah. right. The article doesn't say how the Crime Stoppers video was used, although the story's headline called it an ad. This was hmm. 1993, so they weren't putting it on the police department Facebook page or any of that bullshit but I'm sure it was on the local, it went on to the local TV station. The story also had more details on Amy's involvement in the Little Sisters program. The Rutland Herald is adamant that it's part of Big Brothers Big Sisters and refers to it to that. And as you mentioned, Becky, in our last episode, that's the mentoring program for kids Mm -hmm. that pairs an adult with a kid, usually a kid from a single parent family, low income family. Yeah. But the Burlington Free Press, every time it mentions the program, calls it something different and never once calls it Big Brothers Big Sisters. In this Hmm. article, he calls it a special friends program and mentions it's operated through the Howard Center for Human Services. The reporter implies the kids have some kind of special need, though he doesn't come out and say it. I quote from the article, Fitzgerald had undergone special training and was working with a child for several months. Volunteers are not asked to provide therapy, but rather a long-term friendship that involves some type of activity each week. This is Maureen again. Now that sounds to me like Big Brother's little sister, big sisters, because they go through training like that. And, you know, it could be something else, but I think I, I just think Diane Derby at the Rutland Herald, who who refers to it as the Big Brother's Big Sisters program, got it. Not to fixate on it, but it is significant. The child becomes significant later in the story. The story at its end mentions that Greg Fitzgerald, along with Amy's parents, arrived in Shelburne that day, that Friday, and met with authorities for several hours. On Tuesday, May 18th, 
A week after Amy's body was found, an Associated Press story appeared in the Burlington Free Press with the headline, Few Salad Leads in Shelburne Slaying. The story mm. said that though police were following dozens of leads, they still had no salad suspects. Nick Ruggiero, the state police major, said that the Crime Stoppers video brought in 70 calls. They were particularly interested in whether anyone had spoken to Amy that weekend, the weekend she died, and also if anyone who she may have talked to about buying a sailboat had spoken to her that huh. weekend. Shelburne Police Lieutenant Frank Thornton said that they were also checking on a tip that Amy had recently confronted someone looking into the window of her condo. Ooh. Thornton didn't say where the information came from, but Sam Zeltzerman, her dad, told the Boston Globe that Greg had said Amy told him about it. According to Greg, the man claimed to be a meter reader, even though it was 930 at night. Amy confronted the guy, according to Greg, but didn't call the police. And it's not clear when that happened in relation to Amy's And murder. when Greg told his father-in-law also? He, he told him after she died. After she died, okay. Yes, he, when he got into Newton. On the same Tuesday that story appeared, Amy's funeral was held in Newton, Massachusetts, about 240 miles from Burlington, Vermont. At the funeral, Greg told Renee LaChapelle from Amy's program at the University of Vermont that he'd planned to live with Amy in Vermont and even start to attend UVM in the fall because he had a couple of courses to complete for his master's. Oh, yeah, the, right. Right, and this is even though he was supposedly going to graduate. You mean like all the courses? <laughs> yeah, like the entire program. Craig told LaChapelle that now that Amy was dead, he wasn't sure if he'd be living in Vermont and attending UVM after all. Mm. Hmm. A few days later, on Friday morning, a story appeared in the Burlington Free Press with the headline, Progress Being Made in Shelburne Murder Case. And again, you have to remember, and this even kept throwing me off, because this is the pre-internet age, if a story appears on Friday, it's reporting things that happened on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Which may seem obvious, but I realize how now we're so used to more immediate news. Exactly. But anyway, that story quoted Major Nick Ruggiero as saying, we are getting there. He also touted the cooperation among more than half a dozen agencies. That's why we will solve this case, he said. He brought up the Peeping Tom incident and said there weren't any other reports of prowlers, break-ins, anything like that in the neighborhood. So it sounds like things were going along well, but police still may have had a ways to go. That's why the headlines of Saturday, May 22nd, must have come as a shock to readers of the Burlington Free Press and Rutland Herald and me on newspapers.com. Husband sought in Shelburne killing, the Free Press said across six Ooh. columns on its front page. Husband sought for murder, the Herald said. Police had gotten an arrest warrant from Judge Linda Levitt very late on the night of Thursday, May 20th. They'd asked Levitt to seal the warrant and the affidavit supporting it which would keep it from being public information. But Friday morning, she ruled that it could be public. So police hoping to get ahead of the press firestorm held a news conference Friday. The problem was, and the reason they wanted the warrant sealed, was that they didn't know where Greg was. Nobody'd seen him since Amy's funeral on Tuesday in Newton, 243 miles away, two days before. Police said that a nationwide search had begun for Fitzgerald, who was believed to be armed with a gun and considered dangerous. At the press conference, the police said that the chief medical examiner determined Amy had died of asphyxia from being strangled, and she also had bruises and marks on other parts of her body. But the big break had come earlier on Thursday. Two detectives had gone to San Antonio to check Greg's alibi with his friend Ricky Rodriguez. 
They came back with not an alibi, but enough information to charge Greg with first degree murder. Uh. <laughs> Ricky. The Burlington Free Press had a sidebar story with its main story that morning with the headline, Victim's Husband, Gregory Fitzgerald, Remains a Mystery. The story by John Howland Jr. starts out, State police think Gregory Fitzgerald strangled his wife. If they are right, that solves one mystery and introduces many more. What kind of person would kill Amy Fitzgerald? Described without exaggeration by those who knew her of a shining example of all that is kind and good in human mm, nature. Just like me. And I'm not saying that to in any way minimize Amy, who does sound like that kind of person, but the writing of the reporter, because, you know, Greg really wasn't that much of a mystery. We'll talk later about the whole motive thing during part two. Okay. But all that reporter had to do was read the eight-page affidavit supporting the warrant that the police distributed to reporters that day. Even if he didn't have enough imagination to understand it, anyone can put the pieces together. The affidavit said Greg would get $106,000 in military spouse benefits if uh. Amy died. Also, she had a money market account that allowed her to write checks for $2,000 on the interest of the account every month. Hmm. Oh, and oh, yeah. He also had a girlfriend in Texas, Greg uh -huh. did. Oh, oh, yeah, again. He dropped out of his master's program a year before, probably around the same time Amy left for Vermont. And so wouldn't have been graduating a week after she was killed after all. Yet uh -huh. Amy and everyone else thought he was going to graduate. That's Gee. Oh, and oh, yeah, there's this. Amy's Jeep had reportedly been stolen in Texas in January. It turns out that Greg took the Jeep from a parking lot and hid it in a secret storage Jeez. unit that she didn't know about. He had reported it stolen and collected the insurance money uh. on it. The Jeep, it turns out, was discovered on April 27th, a little more than a week before Amy was killed. The circumstances surrounding it being found aren't clear. And it's funny that reporters just keep mentioning it in passing instead of seeing it as a huge red flag. Apparently, Amy didn't know about it, but since the car was registered to her and the insurance company had paid on it and the police had impounded it, I'm sure she was going to find out pretty soon. Oh, wait, and then there's this. Greg had a second mailing address Amy also didn't know about for mail he didn't want her to see when she was in Texas, including the bills for the storage warehouse where he stored the Jeep, as well as credit card bills she didn't know he had. Mm. Oh, wait, and then there's this. It turns out Greg also went by the name of Stephen Fitzgerald, Stephen being his middle name, and had a second social security number under that name. <laughs> and it and had a criminal record dating back to 1976 in both Florida under the fake name and Massachusetts under his own. Ugh. His record included soliciting a prostitute, resisting arrest, assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, intimidating a witness, fraud, felony larceny, property violation, and more. Here's what the eight-page affidavit that charged Fitzgerald said happened in the days before Amy died in that weekend. And this is all thanks to Ricky Rodriguez, Greg's pal, who was supposed <laughs> to give him an alibi when the cops went down to San Antonio to talk to <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, Ricky. But didn't. And this is from the reporting of Diane Derby of the Rutland Herald, Meg Dennison of the AP, and Mike Donahue of the Burlington Free Press. On one hand, it's great that this happened still in the good old days when different news organizations all covered things so you could get different information and perspectives. On the other hand, I hate relying on others for information from something like an affidavit. Yeah, I know. I'd rather see it for myself, as you would. I love but, the affidavits when you can find them online. Me too, because they decide, the reporters and editors decide 
decide what's important and what can fit in that newspaper news hole since it's before the internet. And there's also some contradictions, even like when I was doing research later and stuff during the trial, little things would come out that you realize was in this affidavit that was never reported. But anyway, here's the story of what happened according to the affidavit and filtered through three different reporters and their editors that the police got from Ricky and also filtered through the cop who wrote it. On Sunday, May 2nd, Greg Fitzgerald and Ricky Rodriguez left San Antonio in a rented car and headed to New Orleans, arriving in the wee hours of May 3rd. They weren't in town long, but they did manage to be there long enough for Ricky to get arrested for public drunkenness, Mm. and Fitzgerald had to take $300 out of an ATM to bail him out of jail. The two then hit the road again, driving north. They arrived in Hartford, Connecticut the night of May 4th, a distance of 1,426 miles from New Orleans. Fitzgerald checked Rodriguez into a hotel and told him to stay put. He had to go back to Texas, but would be back in two days. Good as his word, he was back the morning of Friday, May 7th. Obviously, he flew and came back. The two drove to Boston, where Ricky says they drove around the city for a few hours before heading to Vermont at around 6.30 p.m., though I think this is an error, and they got to Vermont a lot earlier. I'll talk about that more. Uh, it, not necessarily even an error, just it left out or he's confused. But in any case, they checked into the Hotel Brown on Shelburne Road, which is Route 7 in Burlington, checking in under Rodriguez's name about 1.30 a.m. on Saturday, May 8th. This check-in time is attributed to Ricky. I assume the police checked, and that is indeed when they checked in. Uh Fitzgerald told Rodriguez he had to pick up some stuff from Amy's, but didn't want to run into her, so he was going to wait until, quote, she wasn't home. Rodriguez drove Fitzgerald to Amy's condo just a few miles away in the early hours of Saturday, May 8th. Fitzgerald had Rodriguez park little ways away. Then Fitzgerald walked to the condo wearing camouflage clothing, a green sweater, and maroon beret. Yes, it is the height of ironies that he dressed like some kind of soldier going into battle when he was such a, a maroon lo- beret. Yeah, when he was Fuck. such a loser and a slacker, and she was a decorated army captain. Just saying. Rodriguez drove back to the motel as instructed. Went back to get Craig as instructed a bit later. Greg didn't show, so Ricky went back to the motel. Greg showed up at the motel a little later, driving what Rodriguez described as a little red van. And if you look at a Plymouth Vista, it's like a compact SUV, but these were before the phrase compact SUV was in our lexicon. So I can see him calling that. And this would have been a um, little red van. Yeah. And this would have been five ish in the morning or so by now. Fitzgerald was, quote, shaking, scared and nervous, unquote, and had a red mark on his face. Something went wrong, he told Rodriguez. Greg had Rodriguez follow him in the rental car, and Greg drove Amy's Plymouth Vista up Route 7, parking it on the street in front of Sam's Unfinished Furniture and Burlington's Old North End. The two went back to the motel, and shortly after that, left for Hartford, Connecticut. Fitzgerald flew from Hartford to Austin, Texas, that morning. Rodriguez left a day later, returning the rental car and flying back to Texas via Chicago the next day. By the way, almost everything on this jaunt was registered in Ricky's name, though Greg gave him money to pay, likely out of that $3,000 Amy had given him as a graduation present. Fitzgerald and his girlfriend, Texas girlfriend, Lisa Morales, picked up Rodriguez when he landed in Texas. They were driving a U-Haul truck, one of Greg's preferred rental modes. I think Greg probably liked to rent U-Hauls, drive around in because... 
it's easier to rent one than to rent a regular car. He could have somebody else rent it and pay for it. And there isn't all the rigmarole you have to go through when you rent a car. So it could be in somebody else's name. I never thought of that. Yes. Because he's constantly renting U-Hauls in this and nobody ever talks about it. At around 4 a.m. or a little after the morning of Saturday, May 8th, which would have been when Greg was at Amy's, according to Ricky, a woman in a neighboring condominium heard someone yell, help, and please don't. Much is made of the fact she didn't call the police. We'll talk about that later, but I will say she said later she couldn't tell where it was coming from, and after that brief outburst, she didn't hear anything else. And she stayed up awake and listened and didn't hear anything else. Another woman in another condo heard banging noises around the same time, but wasn't sure what they were, and also couldn't tell where they were coming from. An upstairs neighbor heard Amy shower running at about 4.30 a.m., Major Rick Ruggiero told the press at that Friday news conference after the arrest warrant was issued, it's safe to say he was a suspect from the start. Uh Starting that Friday, when the arrest warrant was made public and continuing for a couple weeks, as Greg was on the run, police took a lot of flack that it took them 10 days after they found Amy's body to get a warrant, allowing Greg to take off. Some of the things police found after they found Amy dead in her condo were... Amy's little sister from the Big Brother, Big Sister program, the girl she was mentoring, told police that she called Amy at around 8 p.m. on Friday, May 7th. Amy said she couldn't talk because Greg was there. She sounded rushed, something that was unusual, the girl said. Oh, interesting. And this is why I don't think that that graduation party was, she was at that till nine. The upstairs neighbor called about an hour later to talk to Amy about a boat Amy was buying and said Amy was hesitant to talk and was talking uncharacteristically fast and nervous, just as the girl had said. Amy didn't want to discuss the price of the boat, something the two had freely discussed before. And I think the neighbor, the neighbor wasn't selling her the boat. The neighbor was just like, it's something Amy and she Advising her or something? Yeah, they just talked. They were friends and talked about it a lot. And she was about to buy one. Amy didn't tell the neighbor that Greg was there, but the neighbor said Greg didn't want Amy to buy the boat. And uh, that's the only reason she could think of that Amy was acting so weird. And she kind of assumed afterwards before amy was found dead and everything oh greg must have been there and so amy couldn't talk both of these phone calls mean the fact that amy was at a grad student function until nine that night was probably off as i talked about before after the first stories of her body being found nobody even mentions that anymore but more importantly if two people said greg was there way earlier than ricky's account hours earlier my guess is that he was Both of these people told this to police before they knew that police were focused on Greg or anything. My theory is that Greg had Ricky drop him off there earlier in the night so Greg could suss the place out and possibly disable the lock on the slider, the patio door, so he could get in later. No one has ever mentioned Mm. this hole in Ricky's story, but it was a confusing few days for Ricky. And I don't know, if I were a reporter, I would have asked somebody about that contradiction. And that's the thing I wonder if it was in the affidavit and you would think somebody would have reported it. And nobody's also reported whether Greg had a key to the condo. But my guess is if police were wondering how someone got in and everything, he may not have. It comes out much later during the trial that a lock was broken and Greg knew about the broken lock. So my guess is he wouldn't just go to Amy's at three in the morning, assuming he could get in, that he went there earlier to talk to her 
and then left under some pretense. That's why two people who had no reason to say he was there. Yeah. And police have never, that I can see in any of the news stories, have discussed that, but that's my theory. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. At first, the police didn't believe the little girl who told them that a day or two after her body was found because they said they thought Greg was in Texas. My guess is, too, that she was an 11-year-old, quote-unquote, disadvantaged kid, and they just weren't inclined to believe anything she said. To me, the kid's info makes sense. Amy was due to pick her up the next day to do their weekly outing, and she would have called to check, you know, the night before and stuff. They probably just didn't even listen to what the kid was saying. I'm sure it was. In fact, I had this picture in my mind of the little girl. First of all, Amy, very very responsible and punctual didn't pick up the kid on saturday and didn't call to say she couldn't make it yeah so the kid was probably already worried and for all i know her family was one of the ones who called police because Mm -hmm. several people were saying to the police you have to go check on amy i can just see the little girl saying to her parent or whoever i called her and she said greg was there and i can see the whole thing being an ordeal for the kid of nobody really paying attention to what she was saying i'm sure they did you know and then the neighbor amy didn't say greg is here she just acted like greg was there and frankly i could see a female cop getting it getting that reporters meg dennison and diane derby both say in articles that ricky gave two versions or two accounts of their adventures over those few days but it's never made clear how those versions differ or which version we're reading. The police interviewed Greg on Friday, May 14th, the first day he was in Vermont. He came there with her parents after her body was found, as well as May 15th and 16th. They said there were many inconsistencies to his stories. They asked him a couple of times to take a lie detector test, but he wouldn't. At one point, saying he wasn't feeling well because he'd eaten some bad ravioli, well, I understand that. Diane Derby reported. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any benefit to taking a lie detector. <laughs> so I was talking about the bad ravioli, but yes, I agree about that. Yeah. I wouldn't take a lie detector. We were able to show he lied to us, and we we're able to show, based on probable cause, he's the one that killed her, Major Nick Ruggiero said at the May 21st press conference. Now, there are a lot of things these newspapers could start looking at, even though Greg was on the run especially given the fact that Greg was on the run. But the Burlington Free Press, Rutland Herald, and even the AP got into a wheel-spinning snit over the fact that Ruggiero had initially quote-unquote lied to them about Greg being a suspect. It became such a kerfuffle that even Vermont Governor Howard Dean got pulled into it. Now, you know me. I'm the last person in the world to defend the police, especially where newspapers are involved. But the cops made it pretty clear, as already quoted in this story, that there were things they weren't telling the press, and nor should they be. Any journalist worth his or her salt, at least back then, knows or should have known that in a case like this, the police use the press for their own means, and everything that's released or isn't is for a purpose. Also, no one should be surprised that the police don't tell the truth, particularly to reporters. I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) Reading between the lines by reading all the stories, the many stories about the police lying thing, it looks like it all started that Friday of the press conference when they announced the arrest warrant with the Burlington Free Press. The Free Press story says, quote, an arrest warrant was obtained Thursday for Fitzgerald, but late Thursday night, Ruggiero denied it, unquote. So that tells me that the reporter, Mike Donahue, got a tip that they'd issued the warrant. 
He called Ruggiero and asked Ruggiero, and Ruggiero lied and said, no, they didn't. And yes, Mm. that would piss me off too. But at the time, the cops had asked the judge to seal the warrant and the affidavit so they wouldn't be made public. And Ruggiero wasn't going to say yes if the judge was going to rule that they could keep them private. The free press story says authorities admitted Friday that they had lied to the public about parts of their investigation, including whether Gregory Fitzgerald was a suspect, unquote. Then it quotes Ruggiero as saying, we should lie to you if it protects the integrity of the case. One thing I don't agree with is the way one of his quotes was edited. He said, we should lie to you at the Burlington Free Press. After you, they put in parentheses, the public. And you don't put something in parentheses because you're interpreting it it that way when the person didn't say it in their quote. When Ruggiero said, we lie to you, he's talking to the press. Mm -hmm. He was talking to reporters. And now you can argue semantics and say, yes, you know, reporters are the public. But as an editor, I would not have allowed that parenthetical word to go in. And it just shows kind of the level that this little pissy match was going on. Mm -hmm. The whole cops lying to the public issue goes back and forth for days and days and days and days. The whole thing was like a playground fight, and I won't get into the ins and outs anymore except to talk about a Thursday, May 27th story by AP reporter Susan Allen. At a press conference she covered about some other issue, Governor Howard Dean, Vermont Governor Howard Dean, was asked about it, and Dean said, quote, I think it's unfortunate, but sometimes you have to do those things in order to get the person. I don't think it should be done often because it makes people lose credibility. You should never lie unless there's a damn good reason for it. And most of the time there isn't. I view cases like that somewhat like war. When you've got somebody as dangerous as that, you really have to be sure you get them off the streets. And so sometimes you have to do things you wouldn't do under other circumstances. Ruggiero in the story says, yes, on May 12th, the day after the body was found, he told reporters Greg wasn't a suspect because they still thought at the time Greg was in Texas. Quote, we had no opinion of whether he was a suspect until after we interviewed him. After that interview, we turned our sights on him as a suspect. So Ruggiero is saying, because they talked to him on Friday, May 14th, that that would have been when he became a suspect. Allen, in her story, then points out this differs from what Ruggiero said on May 22nd when he said, it's safe to say he was a suspect from the start. And also, too, this is Maureen, I would think that the cops would think, okay, even though Greg was supposedly in Texas, for instance, he could have hired somebody to kill her. What the cops should have said from the beginning instead of saying we don't have any suspect, is to say everybody's a suspect, you know. That's right. Then the story quotes Ruggiero is saying, the press is accusing us of lying. However, we never felt we lied to the public. (laughs) We were vague at times, and we held back information, but we never out and out lied. And this is Maureen again, memo to everyone everywhere. Police lie all the time. They lie to the public. They lie to suspects. They lie under oath. They're proud of it and they brag about it and they believe they should be allowed to and they defend the fact that they lie. So even the police saying that they didn't lie or don't lie is lying. (laughs) The press also seemed to think the cops who were at Amy's May 18th funeral should have nabbed Greg right then. Of course, the police didn't have a warrant, which the reporters don't seem to understand. Usually, if you don't have an arrest warrant, it's because the DA or whoever the higher law enforcement person is saying, no, we need more evidence before you can arrest them. It's not up to the cops. The warrant in a murder case is not up to the cops. The cops don't make a decision to arrest somebody, and the reporter should have known that, too. 
reporters peppered Governor Howard Dean about the lack of a May 18th arrest, too. He said, the issue of why the state police didn't grab her husband when he was here, I don't know the answer. And by here, he means Vermont, not Massachusetts. But my speculation is maybe they didn't have enough to pin on him. I have a lot of respect for the state police. I think Ruggiero is one of the top investigators any place. I'm just assuming he knows what he's doing. (laughs) I think that's a good assumption. (laughs) Then Dean himself raises the issue about the two neighbors that heard something but didn't call the police. Quote, I believe and I hope it's people wanting to mind their own business and not people being afraid to get involved. I don't think our sense of community is as badly impaired as it is in some places, like in New York City, he said. And so, yeah, and so that brings up a point. Well, this back and forth about the police lying used up a lot of ink, paper, and time. Well, everyone waited for Greg Fitzgerald to resurface. The press actually could have been doing its job. I don't know if anyone tried to talk to the women who, quote, didn't call the police, but every time Amy crying out is mentioned in a story, it's also noted that they inexplicably didn't call the police. Dean's reference to New York City, I'm sure, is a reference to the Kitty Genovese case Mm -hmm. in the early 60s, when supposedly... 38 people heard her cries for help as she was being stabbed to death and didn't call the police. That, as fewer people now know, turned out to be more complicated and more of an urban legend than the truth. It's hard to know exactly what happened with Amy. And one of the women who heard Amy later testified at Greg's trial, bravely, I think, given the shit she was getting, she briefly heard something that was help, please don't, and then she heard nothing. Her roommate didn't wake up. She got up looked out the window, got a drink of water, listened for more, for more than 10 minutes, heard nothing else, and she couldn't tell where the first thing was coming from, wasn't sure of what she heard, and went to bed wondering. I know everyone thinks that they're a big hero, and if it was up to them, they'd save the day and call Mm -hmm. the police, but you don't know what you're going to do unless you're in that situation. My guess is most people would talk themselves out of thinking it's anything and wouldn't want to be embarrassed calling the police about something so vague. You know, who knows? And also somebody saying, help, please don't. I wouldn't necessarily know if that was something I should be calling the police about. I know. Most people don't call the police. You know, people act like these women knew somebody was getting murdered and didn't do anything about it. I know. It's not their fault Amy is dead. It's not their fault that police let Greg initially get away. And people shit on them more than pointing the blame where it's due. And the reporters could have done a little digging. Exactly. Now, as someone who worked for daily newspapers for nearly 40 years, my guess is the whole police lied to a shit was pushed by upper editors who wanted that angle followed. The reporters who have to deal with the police every day wouldn't have wanted to burn that bridge, maybe except for the one guy, Mike Donahue, who Ruggiero lied to on Thursday night about the warrant. Anyone who's watched season five of The Wire, (laughs) if you haven't worked in a newsroom... (laughs) No, some of the editors way up at the top who haven't been on the streets can be a little sideways when it comes to pursuing stuff. But here are some of the things they could have looked at instead of throwing sand around the sandbox while they waited for Greg to show up. How about digging more into Greg's criminal past or Uh Greg and Amy's relationship? The fact that the Jeep was found in a secret warehouse before he killed Amy. All that gets is like brief mentions in stories. Instead of anyone trying to find out what went on with that. Did no one think that there was maybe something to look into a little more? All that stuff was in the arrest affidavit. The Burlington Free Press reporter who wrote that Greg's a mystery story 
wrote, Mm -hmm. quote, police records include the ambiguous suggestion that he may have stolen his wife's Jeep. Well, it's not ambiguous. He (laughs) said he stole it and got the insurance money. Here's a non-ambiguous suggestion. Why don't you get your head out of your ass, take some calls and find out what the story was with that. Jesus, the guy's been convicted on fraud. And that's the affidavit too. How about connecting some dots? Also, the Boston Globe reported that Amy's father said Amy loved the Jeep. And if she'd known what Greg had done, it would have been the end of their marriage. Mm. To me, that's something a reporter could hang a story on and find out more. This is information that Vermont reporters knew and just alluded to in stories, but no one seemed to think about doing anything more or even mentioning it much. Now, here's another thought. This guy is on the run. Why not start calling people who may have known him in Newton or in Texas and find out more about what he's like when they last talked to him, if this is out of character, where he might go, you know, reporting. (laughs) And if they don't want to bother with Amy's case, here are some other things. The same day the first story about Amy's body being found appeared, the Free Press also had a story right next to it about a woman named Sherry Martin who was shot four months before. Her husband was jailed as a, quote, prime suspect, but police were now calling it a suicide on May 13th, Uh. though they weren't saying why or what had changed. Sherry, 26, was found slumped and unconscious from a gunshot wound to the head in a car outside her apartment complex in Winooski, a suburb of Burlington, on January 4th. She died the next day in the hospital. Her husband, Leo, 23, was with her, quote, right before she died, unquote, in violation Mm -hmm. of a protection from abuse order. In December, shortly before the shooting, he had threatened to kill her and their three young children. Lauren Bowerman, Mm. the county attorney in the May 13th story, said there have been allegations of threats and prior domestic violence, so we wanted to look at this carefully before agreeing it was a suicide. (laughs) At the time the story appeared, Martin was still in jail for, quote, unrelated charges. What were they, you may ask? Oh, violating parole on sex charges. Oh, okay. Even though mm-hmm. I was working on this story, the Amy Fitzgerald one, I was curious, so I checked to see what other things I could find in newspapers.com. Turns out the day Sherry Martin was shot, she'd been in court asking that the protection from abuse order she had against her husband, Leo, be lifted so she could reunite with her husband and save her marriage. The court didn't make a ruling that day. It was supposed to be made later in January. That night, one of Martin's kids wandered into a neighbor's apartment. She took the kid back home and Leo was there even though he wasn't supposed to be because uh-huh. of the protection from user. He told the neighbor to go check on Sherry in the car because she'd passed out. He told the neighbor they'd had an argument in the car and she'd threatened to kill herself. He also told the neighbor, I have to leave before the police get here. The police, however, did catch up with him the next day. He had a big blood stain on his pants. He couldn't explain, according to a police report, something that was never mentioned in another news story again, and no reporter oh, ever asked the police God. about it. A gun was found near Sherry's body, and she did own a gun, police said. Sherry had complained to her family that Leo was physically abusive. Her family and the neighbor also said she was devoted to her kids. Leo Martin told police they'd spent the day together. They both had a few beers. He wasn't supposed to drink. That was a bail violation. Oh, yeah, that's usually a bail Right. Condition. Another one was that he, another bail violation, because he was out on bail, was that he wasn't supposed to contact Sherry and the kids. So he was arrested the day she died on those charges. What was he out on bail for, you may ask? 
violating probation on a conviction on four counts of prohibited sex acts, which today is sexual assault on a minor, in mm. charge of disseminating pornography to a minor. Mm. And yet he had three kids under five that he was hanging out with. <sighs> He'd violated his probation by threatening Sherry that he was going to kill her and the kids. I know it's confusing because there's probation he violated and there's bail he violated. Yeah. In fact, he, yeah. he told his probation officer that as soon as he was off probation, he was going to kill Sherry and the kids. And that's why he was arrested on December 17th. For fuck's sake. The, the day after he was arrested on December 17th, on December 18th, Sherry got the relief from abuse order and had her building manager change the locks on the apartment. On December 23rd, Leo's brother posted his $5,000 bail. So that was the bail he was out on. A couple days before Sherry was shot, she ran into Leo's cousin in the grocery store. They talked for about half an hour. She told the cousin she was afraid Leo was going to kill her. She was real upset. She was crying. She was holding it together, but she was really scared. The cousin, Tracy Morrill, told the Burlington Free Press. Pat Wills, the building manager, also told the Free Press the family was being evicted because Martin's conviction on sex charges violated the terms of the release. Mm. Wills also pointed out that domestic violence always has a sad ending. Mm, yes, it does. The state attorney's office determined in May that Sherry's death was suicide. Martin had been in jail, being held on $20,000 bail ever since she was shot. His lawyer, when that suicide ruling was made, looked to get it lowered to $5,000, but the judge only lowered it to fifteen. dollars In a story in early May, before um, the one about it being suicide, Martin's mother said that Leo and Sherry had a turbulent relationship I'm with drinking sure. and abuse on both sides, something we always hear in mm -hmm. domestic abuse stories. You know what I say to that? She also told the Free Press that the night of the shooting, Leo told her this, that Sherry didn't want him to leave the house that night. She bolted out the door, and as she did, she told him, you stay here with the kids because I'm going to go shoot myself. Oh, please. Okay, right, and that is not what the neighbor who was there told the free press the day after Sherry was shot. Martin was sentenced to two to four years for violating the protection order and violating parole on the sex charges. His mother, Margaret Miller, wrote a letter to the editor of the Burlington Free Press complaining about how, how unfair it was, and this was after it was ruled suicide, that he'd spent the past four months in jail and how unfair the high bail was and how unfair his sentence was. So that's one story the journalists of Vermont could have dug more into while they waited for Greg Fitzgerald to resurface. Why did the state decide it was suicide? And maybe a deeper look at domestic abuse rather than the superficial one the reporting was based on, especially now that they had another domestic abuse murder on their hands. In a postscript in August of that year, 1993, Martin was one of six prisoners to escape from the state mm. prison in South Burlington. All six were idiots. They escaped at 8.30 on a Thursday by basically jumping a fence, and by 2.30 Friday, they were all back in prison. Martin was found at his sister's house. Martin's <laughs> mother said that he was frustrated because they wouldn't let him out of jail to visit his wife's grave and see his kids. Oh, please. His No wonder he's such a piece of shit. Yes. His mother clearly has yes. enabled him his whole life. Yes, and this is only the tip of the iceberg on this story. I couldn't, you know, it, there was just too much. But anyway, oh, he God. screwed up bad today, real bad, she told the free press. He could have gotten out by the next June, but he got another one to five years added to the sentence. If the Burlington Free Press didn't want to find out more about why Leo Martin's wife's death was ruled a suicide, here's another one that merited a story. Beverly Hines Smith, 32, was killed in Burlington on December 31st, 1991. 
Beverly's death was immediately ruled a probable homicide as opposed to the homicide hmm. that Amy's was. The cause of death was a lacerated liver caused by blunt trauma to the abdomen. Mm. She also had trauma to the head and extremities, as well as broken ribs. In the months after Amy's death, a year and a half after Beverly's, Beverly's sister, Wanda Hines, told Rutland Herald reporter Diane Derby, she was bruised head to foot. You can tell this woman was traumatized in the last 15 or 20 minutes of her life. She was beaten to death. In the five years before Beverly was killed, police had responded to 55 calls to her residence, most for domestic abuse and assault. When her boyfriend, Eldred Stafford, left Vermont shortly after Beverly was killed, no one bothered to look for him, even though he was on probation at the time after being convicted of assaulting Beverly, as well as her 15-year-old daughter, earlier that year. He was later arrested in New York on the probation violation after he got picked up for something else in that state. He was returned to Vermont and served the probation sentence. And by the time Diane Derby was writing about Beverly Hines Smith a year and a half later, he was out of jail and no longer be monitored by police. Police told Diane Derby they didn't have a suspect in the homicide of Beverly. I don't know who it could possibly be. Even though Wanda Hines had a box load of police and court records documenting Stafford's abuse of Smith. As you may have already guessed, Beverly Hines Smith was black. Mm. Wanda Hines told Diane Derby she was a black woman from the old North End. Nobody really made anything about it. Police, of course, vehemently denied that race had anything to do with the lack of action on Beverly Hines Smith's murder. They wouldn't tell Diane Derby why it was classified as probable homicide instead of a homicide and wouldn't talk about why Stafford wasn't a suspect, saying it would jeopardize the investigation. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing was more complicated than people realize. To that, I say, what investigation? (laughs) when beverly died it garnered a four paragraph ap story inside the paper though her name was mentioned in year-end murder roundups the burlington free press didn't write about it again until more than two months later in march of 1992 then nobody wrote it about it again when amy fitzgerald was killed amy's story was on the front page of the free press and the rutland herald for days and then on the inside pages for weeks but on top of that remember the 18 investigators from a bunch of law enforcement agencies Uh were searching for clues around Amy's condo the morning after her body was found. There was none of that around Beverly's old North End department. And the weeks after Amy's death, police bragged that 32 officers had worked on Amy's case. I wonder how many worked on Beverly's. And that March 1992 story, a few months after Beverly's death by Mike Donahue of the Burlington Free Press, police said they needed more evidence before they could call Beverly's death a homicide. See, her boyfriend, the one who'd skipped probation on charges of assaulting her and her daughter, told police he thinks she was drinking too much that night and she fell and hit her head on a stereo speaker. And that's probably what killed her. This is despite the fact that the medical examiner found she died of blunt force trauma to the abdomen, causing a lacerated liver. Oh, yeah. And there's this hair samples that match Beverly's were found in a six inch indentation in the wall of her apartment. Stafford stopped talking to police and took off for New York after they asked him about that, police told Donahue. You know those criminal charges Stafford had preceding Beverly's death? It turns out he was given probation in September 1990, a little more than a year before her death, for assaulting Beverly and her teenage daughter. He'd been sentenced to two, four to 12 months sentences, all but 22 days suspended, which means he was served 22 days. Though he didn't attend the domestic violence course he was required to as a requirement of his probation, and also harassed Smith, another violation that she reported to police, he wasn't put back in jail. 
The night of Beverly's murder, her friend, Tina O'Toole, told police that Stafford had hit Beverly several times that night. Half an hour after Tina left Beverly's apartment, Stafford showed up at Tina's apartment and said Beverly was dead. Police told Donahue in March 1992, and I think the only reason Donahue did that story was Wanda Hines, Beverly's sister, was haranguing people to do something. Hmm. But police told Donahue that they were looking for more evidence, but wouldn't say what it was. Police records right after Beverly's death indicated that they had searched her apartment for the stereo speaker, blood, hair, and signs of a struggle. Police were very quick to tell the press every time there was a story, including that first one and to Mike Donahue, that Beverly had a high alcohol limit at the time of her death, and there were traces of cocaine in her blood, that she'd been drinking all day with her friend Tina O'Toole, who, according to police, also was way above the legal limit of alcohol. After that 1992 story, more than a year went by before anything else appeared in the papers, except for a couple letters, including one from Beverly's sister, Wanda Hines, pointing out how cases involving murders of white women seemed to get a lot more attention. Police had closed another white woman murder and were, you know, tooting their horn about it. And that spurred a few letters, including one by Wanda. After several years of pressure by Wanda Hines and others, including the local ministry, signing a petition, the DA brought a manslaughter charge against Stafford in 1995. He pleaded no contest that September and was sentenced to 19 and a half months. But (laughs) once he was out, he violated probation, took off for New York again, and was caught, was back in, and had to serve the rest of his sentence. One of the papers had a very disturbing headline when he took off, referring to him as victim's lover, Um, escapes and that's a huge case of not getting it so diane derby of the rutland herald in july of 1993 after amy's death she wrote a story pointing out racial disparities focusing on the beverly hines smith case and i'm sure it was at the behest of wanda hines that she wrote the story but that story was as far as newspapers in vermont were looking at issues like that it's non-existent next to the police lied to us effort <laughs> that had daily stories for two weeks. Beverly Hines Smith, obvious murder by a guy. And people would say, well, he was black, you know, too. And black men, blah, blah, blah. When it comes to a black man murdering a black woman, uh, they, yeah. don't, they only want to railroad the black man for killing a white person. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to put a black man who actually killed a black woman in prison because they didn't give a shit about Beverly Hines Smith's death. Uh-huh. Eldred Stafford killed Beverly Hines Smith just the same as Greg Fitzgerald killed Amy Fitzgerald and nobody gave a shit. So when we last left the Amy Fitzgerald case, it was Friday, May 21st, and police had issued a warrant for Greg Fitzgerald's arrest, but Greg was nowhere to be found. A week later, a San Antonio police spokeswoman told reporters cops in Texas were also looking for Greg's girlfriend, Lisa Morales, who was also nowhere to be found. They thought she might be in danger because she may not know Fitzgerald was wanted for murder. Also, the spokeswoman doesn't say this, but I'm sure the bigger concern was maybe she could lead them to Greg. The Rutland Herald at the time was still chewing the police lied bone. (laughs) Diane Derby asked in her article, what did the police know and when did they know it? She talked to Lieutenant Frank Thornton of the Shelburne police, who tells her, you've got to realize that a murder investigation is not like TV. There's a hell of a lot of complex details that go into it. In retrospect, it's easy to say you guys should have concentrated on the husband right away. Our initial impression is that the husband was in Texas and he was well alibied. 
even though when they interviewed Amy's little sister from the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and I keep saying that so people don't think I'm talking, she doesn't have a younger sister, who said Amy told her Greg is here that night, but Thornton said, that was just one of many things. At the time, we didn't know it would jump to such prominence. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, somebody saying Greg is here tonight and he was murdered. <laughs> Police Chief James Warden, and some stories say he's the Shelburne chief, some say he's the Burlington chief, I, <laughs> also said they didn't have the resources to trail someone 24 hours a day. He said that trailing someone involves four officers at a time, 24 hours a day, and they just didn't have the manpower. And he also said it's not like it is on TV. On June 1st, a memorial service was held for Amy in Shelburne, and a plum tree was planted in her memory on the campus of the University of Vermont. A scholarship in her name was also launched. Her parents attended, and her father said he hoped the scholarship could get enough money to be perpetual. I didn't look it up to see if it was. The next day on June 2nd, a U-Haul truck Greg had rented the day after Amy's May 18th funeral in Newton, Mass., was found in Newton in a parking lot. On June 3rd, Boston Globe reporter Judith Gaines interviewed Greg's family in Newton. By this time, Greg was on the FBI's most wanted list. Every morning, I wake up thinking it can't be, but the horror won't go away, said Greg's younger brother, Leo Fitzgerald, 33. Quote, maybe he's out there thinking it's his life. It's just his problem. But it's a tragedy for two families, like a cancer that's eating at us, and it won't end until he comes forward. His sister, Candy Delaney, 28, told Gaines, we want him to know that we love him and want him to come back and deal with this. She was described as the family member closest to Greg. Members of the family said they were shocked because Amy and Greg, who were married in 1987, as I said, seemed like such a perfect couple. One sister-in-law of Greg's, who asked that her name not be used in the story, compared it to the Charles Stewart case. And then she said they were like Peter Pan and Wendy. I consider both comments bizarre because by 1993, everyone knew what a dirtbag Charles Stewart was and what Carol had gone through, his wife had gone through with him. And Peter Pan and Wendy, give me a break. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Candy Delaney, Greg's younger sister, said that Greg and Amy were both bright and energetic and shared a love of adventure, travel, outdoor activities, and political discussions. And if Greg, quote, seemed a little irresponsible at times, unquote, Amy was a positive influence who added balance and stability. Uh, In other words, she had to do everything. Right. Well, the fact his family considers him not working and engaging in criminal activities, some of which he's been convicted of in Massachusetts, so they must have known about, as seeming a little irresponsible. I think that's part of the problem. His brother Leo said news of the murder came like a thunderbolt to the family who had not an inkling that anything was wrong in the relationship. He said Greg was shocked and angry when he learned about Amy's murder and that at her funeral, quote, he was incoherent and babbling and saying they were going to pin it on him and he was innocent. Leo said that Greg was, quote, talking suicide, unquote, though no one in the family when this interview was done seemed to think the fact he hadn't been heard from in more than two weeks was anything to worry about on that front, which I think Uh is significant in many ways. Yeah. Now, Leo wonders, quote, have we all been buffaloed? Is there a monster in this family? Is there some other explanation? The reporter, Judith Gaines, described Leo as red-eyed and crumpling to the kitchen floor (laughs) as as he read for the first time the eight-page affidavit leading to Greg's arrest warrant. Leo and Candy said that their father, Paul, had been too stunned and mortified to call Amy's parents at all since she'd been found dead. Quote, he just sits by the phone waiting, waiting, waiting for Greg to call or for someone to call and tell him Greg's been caught or killed himself, said the sister-in-law who didn't want her name used. 
So what was Greg doing while the reporters and police in Vermont were sniping at each other? The families of other victims despaired over ever getting anyone to even pay attention. Amy's family mourned and Greg's dad sat by the phone waiting, waiting, waiting. The day of Amy's funeral in Massachusetts, May 18th, two days before Judge Linda Levitt was to issue a late night arrest warrant in Vermont, Greg was beginning to panic. The day after Amy's funeral, Greg met with his cousin, Robert Seville, at a, where else, Dunkin' Donuts parking lot (laughs) in Newton. Greg's brother, Brian, arrived with Seville, but stayed in the car as Seville got out and talked to Greg. As Seville walked toward Greg, Greg blurted out, I did it. What, Seville said? I killed her, Greg responded. You're fucked, Seville said. Actually, I'm assuming that's what he said. In the Burling Free Press, it says, you're expletive. It just says expletive indicating things did not look good for Fitzgerald. (laughs) I would say you're fucked. But Fitzgerald, man of the way too complicated plan, had an idea. He offered his cousin $15,000 to drive to Vermont and call a newspaper saying he knew who did it and it wasn't Craig. To make this credible, Seville could give them some information police hadn't released to the newspapers of the public. That Amy was killed in her bedroom, then dragged to the bathroom and put in the bathtub. And as you remember, Amy indeed was found in the bathtub. The police hadn't told the public that scrapes and stuff on Amy's body led them to believe she had been killed in the bedroom and dragged to the bathroom and put in the tub, but that's what they thought had happened. Greg told his cousin, no one else will know that. Seville said he couldn't help Greg out because he had a wife and small kids to consider and he didn't want to get in trouble. Greg was like, okay, he'd find someone else. He told him not to tell anyone, but the minute Seville got back into his car, he told Greg's brother, Brian. Of course he did. Yes. And Greg also asked Seville if he could get him some cocaine so he and his girlfriend, Lisa Morales, could die by overdosing on it. Oh my God. Seville couldn't help him out on that either. Yes, Lisa was on her way to Boston. On May 19th, the day of the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot meeting, Greg called Lisa in San Antonio, and she hopped a plane to Providence, Rhode Island. Greg really liked having people go to different airports. It likes to switch Uh it up, you know, a clever way to stay ahead of the police. Lisa left a note on her dresser for her mother, who she lived with, that her mother later described as like a will. How old was Lisa? She was 22. Oh, I figured it sounds like she was young. Okay. Yeah. And they'd been together since she was 20. Greg picked up Lisa at the Providence airport and one of his favorite modes of transportation, a rented U-Haul truck. And the two hit the road. They drove to Ohio where they spent several days in a cabin in Putin Bay, Ohio, a resort town on Bass Island in Lake Erie, northeast of Toledo, and just below the international border with Canada. Uh If I had to guess, I'd say Greg was trying to weigh the odds of getting across the border, maybe by boat. Nobody ever says anything about that in any story. They barely mention where he was, but why else go there? After several days there, they drove back to New England, where they apparently hit New Hampshire and Maine. While no details were given about where they went in those two states, my guess is, again, he was looking for ways to cross the border. In any case, they eventually made their way back to Newton, where police started getting reports of sightings and his credit card started pinging on the first week of June. Why the fuck did he go to Newton? On June 2nd, the U-Haul he'd rented was found in a parking lot in Newton. Greg rented a car, and on June 4th, the day that the interview with his family appeared in the Boston Globe, he and Lisa drove into the woods after drinking all day. They decided they'd die by suicide by attaching a dryer hose to the exhaust and filling the car with carbon monoxide 
Once they'd started the car up, Lisa got hot and turned on the air conditioner. Later, that was given as the reason it didn't work. My guess is Greg did something to make sure it wouldn't. In any case, they woke up sick and decided that Greg needed to turn himself in. And that was Friday. And the reason I don't take his suicide attempt seriously is if he had wanted to, they would have died. I think he was trying to make himself at that point look sympathetic. As I said, the interview with his family members appeared in the Boston Globe that same day. And frankly, I'm sure at least some of his family had to have known he was around, despite what they told the Globe. It's not clear what Greg and Lisa did over the weekend after they woke up sick after their botched suicide attempt. But Monday night, June 7th, Greg walked into the Newton Mass Police Department, Lisa by his side, and turned himself in. And so that's part Uh, one. Be sure to listen to part two when we talk about the revelations that came out after Greg was arrested, further eraser killer behavior, a very odd twist. Will it turn it in a whole new direction? A twist no one saw coming. No one saw it coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll have to listen to find out. But now that you said there's a twist, I'll see it coming. So thanks. Yeah, but you won't know when. Spoiler. You won't know when. And what happened to Greg's trial and what's happened since. But we'll also talk more about eraser killers, what characterizes them, and the issues still, even now, all these years after Amy Fitzpatrick was killed, that make it hard for people to grasp their crimes. You know, Mm -hmm. people always want that motive. And also, I wanted to say we had to rely on newspaper accounts and what few court documents were available to put the story together, both parts one and two. We can't really know the details of Amy's relationship with Greg. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know. And while we can guess at some, we can't know the whole truth. I don't mean that means that things were likely better than they appear. I mean, it. they were probably likely worse, given the fact that Greg killed her. And here's something to mull between now and part two. I listen to a lot of podcasts that deal with men who are basically eraser killers and exercise coercive control over their partners. It's not the victim's fault. It's the men's fault. And the fact we live in a society that leans toward giving men the benefit of the doubt and statistics back that up, but also pushes women to believe certain fallacies and not trust themselves. So ladies, you can protect yourself in some ways. And again, I'm not victim blaming. It is up to society to change. But here's how women can protect themselves starting right now. Don't assume that when a guy you don't know well showers you with gifts and flowers, that he's romantic and cares about you. Uh. I'm not saying that flowers aren't a nice gift from a fella, but they're not a substitute for consistent positive behavior. After the first date or something, it's right. Yeah. Like Scott Peterson, like his big thing was to give Ugh. somebody like three dozen flowers on a first date. And the easiest Gross. thing in the world is to buy flowers for somebody. It's a lot harder to be honest, caring and empathetic. Don't fool yourself that because a guy is nice and seems to do caring things some of the time, but he's controlling, rude, abusive, or anything else that's negative the rest of the time that his behavior isn't a problem. He's showing you who he is with the negative behavior. And if he can summon up some niceness once in a while, that's not enough to make up for it. Most narcissists, psychopaths, eraser killers, coercive controllers, and others can manage their behavior enough to make you doubt the bad stuff. It's a way to manipulate you and keep you on the string. If he doesn't like your kids, that's a big red flag. It's your job to take care of your kids if you're a single mom or 
if you're married, if the guy doesn't like your kids, why are you with him? There's a difference between paying attention to your own happiness and not letting like, say you have a teenage kid that doesn't like your boyfriend for some reason and is being a brat. If the guy, like, just like in um, Dirty John, if the guy doesn't like your saying really bad things about you, stick up for your fucking kid. From babies to adult, if he doesn't like them, just on a general basis of not liking them. And I'm not saying that yeah. you can't spend time with him because you have to be with your kids kind of thing. I'm saying if in the normal course of a relationship, he doesn't like your kids. If you feel uncomfortable about anything he asks you to do sexually and he still pushes you to do it, that is a major problem. Mm-hmm. Don't let him call you a prude or whatever. You should only be doing what you feel comfortable doing. In fact, if you feel uncomfortable about any of his behavior, it's a red flag. If he doesn't want you to go out with your friends or see your family, and when you do, he constantly texts you, that's a problem too. These are just some of the things you can control to protect yourself and your family. 20% of the victims, by the way, of domestic homicide murderers are kids, family members, friends, acquaintances, and even strangers who stepped in to help the intended victim or were there when the person was killed. And don't let people fool you with squishy stats that domestic violence happens to men, blah, blah, blah. Well, some of it does. 94% of the victims of domestic violence murder are women. I get frustrated when I hear women talk about their relationship and make excuses for the guy. And when violence happens, it just came out of nowhere. It never just comes out of nowhere. Okay. Until next time. And and now you have um, a recommendation. Yes, I do. (laughs) before we do your nnw we have to talk about from mine from last time because you finally watched dalglish and i want to know what you think yes mom and i watch i have read i think i've read all the books yeah they're based on pd james it's only six episodes there's three stories and each is covered in two episodes, which are much too short, if right. you ask me. Yes. It's just sad how much you forget about books when you read them. Sometimes some books well, stick with it's you, been and others you really enjoy them, and then you, you can't remember. I really enjoyed it. I thought the guy that plays Douglas was very good. They did have a thing at the end, yeah. like a short yeah, documentary type thing, which was very repetitive. One thing they mentioned was that there was a series in the 80s and 90s that we talked about when you talked about it during NNW last time. And P.D. James didn't like that. Somebody mentioned that it was not how she envisioned it. I never watched that one, but I can only imagine that they probably took the characters and put them in a more procedural type, right? you know, like yeah. a lot of them. I mean, like I like British police shows, but there are a lot of them that I've watched that are the same, mm-hmm. similar to American. It's just the same thing. And a lot of people like that because it's like comfort, you know, viewing for them. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably why she didn't like it. But these, I think, like you said, they really have her, the spirit of her writing mom and i enjoyed them very mom mom gave him a thumbs up like i said last time and there was one thing i forgot to mention when i talked about this their use of 2022 basically 2021 race stuff really works with the story yeah. right well like that first episode that happened in a nursing school this one nurse who was kind of bullied and stuff mm-hmm. she was played by a black woman even though in the book she wasn't but what happens and that young woman's character 
in the show and in the book, it really works with her being black, the way she's treated by other people. So they managed to get race, like I said, to get race in there without hitting you over the head with it. They get some diversity in there and Miss Skin being black works fine. Yeah. Um, That actress is is good. Yes. Um, Yeah. So I enjoyed it and I am looking forward to a second season me too I and know I, what it is with you british people and your short yeah your season. short i think the the biggest thing you can say about it is her books are very character based she is good with the plot yeah she is good with the plot and the shows don't mess the plots up even though they have no. to make some changes like i said but i also can't say enough about the actor Bertie clavel who oh, plays yeah. him he as far as i'm concerned if you read the books again he is adam daglish i cannot picture him i know otherwise you know it's kind of like gregory pack and atticus exactly so good i'm glad you finally watched and liked it after i hounded you and hounded. yes you you did well we had to watch other things i know i know if you and if you live in the u.s you can see that on acorn and acorn is 6.99 a month and it's worth getting it for one month to watch that 6.99 i get it through amazon prime i think it was 5.99 i don't know i didn't even try to get it through prime anyways i have a mini kind of recommendation before my nnw and it's not a crime related thing i haven't been listening to a lot of podcasts lately although i did listen to the third season of dead eyes which Mm -hmm. is good i had credits on audible i had to clean hannah's room which was daunting so i downloaded i had two credits one of them was a leanne moriarty book the hypnotist love story which i recommend it was really good the other one I just thought it looked interesting. I read about it in People Magazine as a memoir, kind of an autobiography, actually, by Ron Howard and his brother Clint called The Boys. And the audio version is very good because they are reading Oh, I might listen to that. Ron so far has been talking more than Clint. My one issue, which I honestly have no right to have any technical issue with anything and i think it just has to do with their different voices Mm. but clint always i always have to turn the volume up when he's talking Mm. he has a more raspy voice yeah it's funny um i just saw the seinfeld because i've been binge watching seinfeld um on and off (laughs) where when they're in california and he's like the serial killer that they end up (laughs) in their car i won't go into the whole thing but he's wicked funny i mean clint howard obviously isn't as famous he was well they do say that ron says that clint's five years younger than ron ron says that clint has always been funnier than him yeah. i'm only maybe a third of the way through that do, is very interesting do you think we have it. any listeners who don't know who ron and clint howard are maybe i think they might know who ron howard he's a director but they were both child actors right ron was opie and the andy griffith show and clint was in gentle ben so maybe younger he listeners talked about gentle ben yet and i want him to talk because ron talked a lot right. about Mayberry about about Andy Griffith show. Yeah, Gentle Ben was about a kid and his bear, his bear. Ronnie Howard ended up being a director of some iconic movies too. Cocoon. So I would recommend that to anyone, especially if you have Audible and you like listening to books. So anyway, so to my NNW. Yes. I'm not going to take a point off, but I might take a point off in the future. This might be a new thing. Ooh. If your title is too fucking long, I might take some points off. The title of the of your the whatever it is, the, the documentary. Show, okay. Because this is 
the puppet master hunting the ultimate con man. Why do you have to have that long? Of, no. Right. Well, have you noticed that all nonfiction books now have something short like that and then a colon and then a long this is, thing? This is a documentary. It's three episodes mm-hmm. about con man and it kind of follows two storylines and I'll say more about it when I'm going through my list. But one of the storylines starts in 1993 and the other one starts in 2012 and it's the same con man who's conning these people. So in the earlier one, he's obviously young, college age or maybe a little older, and he cons these college students. He tells them that he's a and M, what is it? MI5? What is uh, it? MI5 British? or whatever. MI5. And that they're in danger from the Irish Republican Army. And he has this long convoluted story, and, and he, they get sucked in, and they end up giving him the kids have money, trust funds and stuff, which is not to say they're wealthy at all, but they end up giving him his money. But it, they drop they're out involved of school. With them for like 10 years. The it's one crazy. woman's, it, it's a oh, year it's so long sad. thing. It's really, really so crazy. Sad. Then the 2012 one is following a woman that got involved with him and now she's been with him. I think they filmed this maybe in 2019 or right. 20. Her kids didn't know It was she like was, six so. or seven years, right? Yeah. So I'll talk about it more while I'm going through it and at the end. So bad reenactments, I'm taking half a point off. They have a lot of those ones where they don't really show, they show like shadowy figures doing stuff, but that is they're not necessary. Mm. And it's just annoying. So I'm taking a half point off. Narrative cliches, half point. It's just copying people. It's got the B-roll stuff, which Mm -hmm. sometimes I don't really mind it because sometimes you see part of the personality. You might not see. I I don't like it when it's self-conscious. Yeah, and I find it to be self-conscious in this and also a lot of the behind the scenes where they're showing someone directing them or they're showing the microphone being placed and all this stuff. It's like, right. So I'm taking half a point off for that. Racial gender, gender obtuseness, and I'm not, not taking a point off because um lack of good visuals i'm taking half a point off i felt like i was seeing and this is also going to come up again in repetition same pictures over and over again of the same shit and i was just annoyed Mm -hmm. there's a lot of filler missing pieces of one probably more as i said the first storyline this is going to come up again in storytelling so i'm not going to go into my issues with that with the way it was presented but the first storyline the 1993 one the con man is a bartender and he gets involved with this this guy who's a college student and two of his roommates who are women one of the roommates is the guy john his name is john's girlfriend sarah and the other one is a girl named maria and they end up on this long trip and that they get separated and Sarah's like involved for 10 years. They tell John and Sarah's story, but I'm thinking, what the hell's going on with Maria all this time? And then near the end of the third one, they mention her in brief. As far as missing pieces, it's like, give me a fucking break. I was wondering the whole thing, like, well, what happened with Maria? Right, she was right. with them too. When they first set off on this long trip together, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but mm. the four of them, the two men, the con man, John, Maria and Sarah have to go on this trip. They don't mention her at all. I wondered if she didn't want to be part of Perhaps, the... Perhaps, but But you still. can still, I agree. And then the, the later one, it's a pretty uh, standard story. He gets involved with these kids who are teens at the time with their mother. 
and he alienates the kids and he gets them to move out and then he gets the mom isolated and blah 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 so that was okay but my problem is he had many many victims they focused on these two stories and i'll talk about that later i just i felt like there was a lot of information missing mm-hmm. and and there it was almost like a very slapdash anachronisms anachronisms no not really storytelling in negative one i thought it was way too switchy between the two stories and it was very confusing from the beginning you know it's about the same guy you know right. that the bartender guy is the same guy as this other guy i mean it's not a big surprise although they kind of make it seem like oh they're the same guy. right it's like yeah, that no man was <laughs> I know. but it just switched too quickly back and forth and it was very hard to uh freshness i'm taking half a point off i didn't know about this guy it was a new story, but I still felt that the way it was told was stale. So repetition, taking a point off because I don't know how many times I have to see the same friggin' pictures of photographs. I mean, I realize, especially with the 1993 story, there probably weren't that many. Right. And also there were a lot of compelling visuals, especially like the farm Sarah was from and yes, her dad and stuff. There's I stuff mean, they kind of showed. Yeah. Uh, beating the drum. I'm taking a point off because they kept telling us what a horrible person this guy was what she was but uh, so the overall score is four i'm not going to say don't watch it because there are parts of it that are interesting i feel like that it was a very slapdash i hate saying that but i mean parts of it were okay but it's like it was like they could have. It, it was like part. reading the first draft of somebody's yes, novel. Yes, exactly. There was an American victim that came in later into the storyline that they could have. And there was so much missing that. One this- of my biggest issues with it was, and I don't want to give too many spoilers, but when he's tried and then it's his convictions overturned, people are, oh, he got off on a technicality. No, no. and actually. One of the issues is, which they could have gotten into way more, is that laws don't cover coercive control. Exactly. And they certainly didn't back then. And so the kidnapping law didn't allow, didn't cover some of what he had done. And that's why they need laws. They should have had Laura Richards on there that cover coercive control and people don't understand. And it was the same thing you hear on a lot of podcasts and shows. Oh, what would motivate somebody to do this? Well, what motivated him was he was a coercive controlling asshole and he got off by controlling people. He was, he was a psycho. What he wanted them to do. He could have stolen money from people a lot easier than he did right he likes he likes the control but i just feel like the story was very it wasn't organized well it was hard to watch yes and it was annoying because there were timeline holes yes some aspects like what that girl's father the farmer did to relentlessly try to find yes, out what happened to his daughter was great story. i liked her, sarah because yes. she told, told her, her story, story well and also john was okay but also yeah. as far as narrative cliches another thing that i hate on true crime documentaries and it always happens like in the last ep- where they get like two people together where they get oh people yeah to, like they oh, got yeah. the kids their adult kids of the woman who's oh with, missing sarah, with the yeah. guy with sarah 
And I just always feel like that's kind of contrived and awkward and uncomfortable. And it's like forcing a narrative. Maybe these people should talk, but I feel like it's a private conversation and I don't want to have to be part of it. I did like the ex-husband of the Mark. His name was Mark. Of the Um, missing woman. And I would have liked a story more about him and the father, but there, but the thing is the American woman, her family was doing, you know, they could have had more. Well, there was all this fluff Yes. And yeah, it should have been done differently and had more episodes. Yes. But it definitely needed that context of coercive control. Why is this guy doing this? You know, is the big question. And also Laura Richards on her podcast, Crime Analyst pointed out to call these people con men is almost make them seem, make it seem like some kind of cute type thing or it's not really what he's doing he's not really a con man he's not a con man no No. he's a he's a psychopathic there is some sociopathic bent to some of those people because you are kind of befriending people and conning them but it's not if you're like fooling people to get money it's a little bit different than leading someone down this path for 10 right. years or locking somebody in a house somewhere for months and, and months lying on to and... them for no reason except right. for that you're psycho i probably would have given it a similar score i think it's worth watching but it needs uh it needs like oh, for instance like when the sarah was working as a nanny or whatever or house cleaner the woman that this woman was apparently someone he knew hired her they barely talked to her they didn't ask right her like there were a lot of questions in- timeline questions and logistical questions it, there were more questions in than fact i'd probably take years. two points off for i could have for missing you could have you can do whatever you so want much, it's our rating there's so much missing i, I know i just they all had been such good storytellers of their own story that show wouldn't have been as good. well and i feel like it's almost like this oh let me tell you this fucked up story about this guy and like there's no analyzing well that's why, why I said the there's guy no was context. so fucked up there's no context there's no... about like they should have had some psychologists explaining the type of behavior and then they should have also had somebody explaining why uh, yes. why his conviction was overturned and just saying yes. oh it's another person because of it and it wasn't when your conviction's overturned it's not a tech that's not right. a technicality it's the court ruled that the law didn't apply to what he did and so that well then what what is wrong with the laws is regarding this kind of thing and i think one of the biggest issues is people seem to have a very superficial view of this kind of behavior if i hear one more person say well i don't understand what the motive is why would he do this and then they appeal to somebody's conscience. these guys don't have a conscience. well the other thing is i think people underestimate how strong that kind of control can be against you and they think well i wouldn't do that i wouldn't let somebody make me do that i wouldn't believe some guy i wouldn't believe him if he said uh, he was a spy yeah Uh, i wouldn't believe well i should have added that to my list if somebody says they're a spy don't believe him because spies don't go around telling everybody that i know that's true although the way he did i'm not saying he was that clever but he picked people he he picked vulnerable people like john guy's friend had just died by suicide yeah and he was vulnerable and also if you believe something that's coming through somebody else who you trust like the girls trusted john yeah it was a volatile time with the ira and stuff so him preyed on their fears yeah Yeah. but anyway anyway, if you do watch it after you watch it listen to laura richards it's only a half hour episode crime analyst 
It is episode 60. It's worth listening to oh. after you watch. Oh, I'll listen to her. Yes. Right. I guess it's our episode. Yes, I can't wait till next time. Part two should come out on Valentine's Day, fittingly. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, are you okay? Yeah. My monitor went off. But anyway, okay, I'm just going to hold my thing like this because it's short. That's what he said. I'm sorry. Are you sorry? No. Are you really sorry? <laughs> no. I would have said the same thing. If- yeah, I know. Yeah. And we're going to have a bad weather again tomorrow. Yeah. I hope you don't lose your power and cable winter again. Rain. Yeah. Well, I didn't lose my power. I know you didn't use your power. I meant I, I hope you don't lose internet. your power.